Welcome to On the Journey Conversations. I'm your host, Sandy Wisdom Martin. Today's episode is brought to you by the Christian Women's Leadership Center of Women's Missionary Union, where God's mission is our passion. Today's guest is my friend, Kelly Franklin. Last week, you heard Kelly speak about her childhood. Kelly, you are a person of deep and profound faith. And last week, we heard about your struggles as a child. How, how did you become a person of deep faith? How did that happen? I think that it would have to come down to prayer, if, if you put it in a nutshell. Um, I had struggled with my faith, and I wasn't content with it. I felt like I had the Red Sea kind of faith from Exodus 14, but I so badly wanted the Jordan River kind of faith. But I felt like I had the faith where if I saw the Red Sea part and I saw the dry land, I had enough faith to walk across that dry land. But when it comes to the Jordan River, that was still, it was like... It was still a flowing river. I get it now. I felt like I didn't have the faith to step out in that running water. That's what I wanted. So I read Joshua 3 like countless times between September and December of 2010. And I would pray and then listen, pray and then listen. It really became more of a three to four month long conversation. It was so real and personal and profound for me. That's probably when my faith deepened more than it ever has. If I'm honest, I'm still not very content with my faith, so it continues to happen. I'm probably what you would call a work in progress. Kelly, I'm so excited that you were willing to come back to the podcast for a second week because I want uh, them to understand what's going on in your life today. You have the most amazing family on the planet. Tell me about your family members. First of all, my husband, Anthony, is the cutest Eskimo to ever come out of Alaska. (laughs) And I know I'm a little biased and everyone has an opinion, but that's really more of a factual statement than an opinion anyway. (laughs) His family is from here. His dad was in the Air Force, so Anthony happened to be born while they were stationed in Anchorage. He works harder than anyone I know, and he loves me big. Next May, we will celebrate our 25th anniversary in the 25 years. We have had the three greatest kids in the entire world. Our son, Blaze, will be 22 in December. He's a good combination of me and Anthony. He's in school at Auburn University in Montgomery. He teaches the 10th grade boys life group at church, and he's been in the Air Force Reserve since he was 17. A heads up, though, if you're talking to him, tread lightly, because if you ever get him in a conversation about food or Jesus, You will need to cancel the rest of the appointments for the day. He will not stop talking until he's too hungry to keep talking. (laughs) He just, that's food and Jesus, that's all he loves to talk about. Um, Then we have our daughter, Bragan. She'll be 20 in December. She is Anthony through and through. She's her dad all day long. She's taken her basics at uh, Jefferson State Community College, and she works full-time at Montevallo Family Dentistry for Dr. Shannara, and she is loving it. She has the brains and the work ethic to do whatever she wants in life. She's talked about going into the Air Force, but she's also talked about going to school to be a dentist. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I told her I still don't know when I, what I want to be when I grow up, so it's okay. So stay tuned. That's right. Um, we have always called her our little mama. She will take care of anybody that's sick, and she has always been wonderful at taking care of her little sister. Which brings me to our baby, our caboose. I call her my boosie boo, Bricklin. She's 15 and in her sophomore year in high school. 
She is my mini-me, looks just like me, yeah, acts absolutely. like me. Sometimes it's almost a little weird how much we're alike. Her hair's thicker than mine, and she is sweeter than I ever was, but that's about it. She is fun and smart and brings so much life to our family. Right now, one of your children is in a battle for her life. Bricklin struggles with epilepsy. Walk us through how she was diagnosed and what is happening now. So I have to take you back to Thanksgiving week four years ago in 2016. Anthony, Blaze, Bricklin, and my mother-in-law had been painting Bricklin's room for Thanksgiving. That was We were remodeling her room, basically. They had gone to the garage to clean out their paintbrushes. Blaze heard Bricklin call his name, but when he looked up to see what she needed, he said that she was kind of in the process of taking a couple of steps backwards, almost on her heels, and then she fell back, hit the floor, and started convulsing. Anthony said that he ran over and kind of cradled her head to keep her head from banging on the cement of the garage, and her arms and legs muscles stiffened up, and they were jerking back and forth really quickly, and He said that around her eyes and mouth started kind of turning blue. And he said that in that moment, that was probably the most helpless feeling he had ever felt. He said that he thought he was about to watch his baby girl die right in front of him, and he couldn't do anything about it. Um, So I was on my way home from work, and I actually got home just within a few minutes after the EMTs had arrived. So I rode in the ambulance when they transported her to Children's Hospital in Birmingham. We were told that everybody gets one free seizure, and they diagnosed her with convulsive syncope and sent us home. They guessed that the paint fumes must have caused her to get dizzy and black out when she fell back and hit the floor that that caused the convulsion. We ended up having a follow-up appointment with her pediatrician, and just to be on the safe side, he decided, you know, let's go ahead and just schedule her for an EEG, just to be sure. So she had an EEG on December the 28th. The day after the EEG, they called me and said that her EEG had shown abnormal spikes and waves, which was consistent with seizure activity, Mm -hmm. and asked us to follow up with pediatric neurology on January the 5th. This is now 2017. We did, and during that visit, they asked if there had been any other seizures since the ER visit. I told them that we had not had anything to that degree. They diagnosed her with epilepsy, and they started her on an anticonvulsant called Lamictal. That was January 5th of 2017. She did have a seizure a few weeks later in January, and then one in February. Then she went six and a half months seizure-free. So... We were thinking, we're past it. Oh, oh yeah, we're, we're good. The medication's working. I have to take medication every day. This is doable. Seizures started back on September the 2nd, was the first seizure since February, and they increased her dosage. That's what they did. They just upped the amount of Lamictal. Wait a minute, let me, let me make sure we're tracking with you. When they when you started back in September, she was she's taking medicine all along, mm-hmm. and then did she have another episode in September? She did. Okay, so she has an episode in September. You're looking at her medicine again, right? So they increased her dosage. Okay. She continues to have seizures. In December, she had two within a week at school. So they just upped the medication until they got to the point where this is the highest dose we want to give her of this because yeah. of the side effects at her weight and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. 
So they ended up adding a second anticonvulsant called Keppra, which can have a lot of side effects. So I kind of hated to have a second one, but they added that in February. By the end of March, she had had six seizures in about seven and a half weeks. So they added a third anticonvulsant called Vimpat. Now, here we are, April, May of 2018, and she is on three anticonvulsants. And nothing's controlling it. Not controlling it. We see now that clearly it helped, but not controlling it. She's still having seizures. But then what they did was they scheduled her for a week-long video EEG, where kind of like a regular EEG where they glue electrodes to your scalp. The difference is you're in the hospital all week, and they have you on 24-hour video, so they're able to see your physical features and compare it to the brain waves. So that was a week in July. They weren't able to capture enough seizures to really get the, the information that they needed. So we went back for another week in September. They were able to get SPEC scans. A SPEC scan is where it measures the blood flow to the brain. And to do that, they inject a radioactive isotope. They have to get two of them. It's called ictal and interictal. Anything ictal is like seizure. So during a seizure, at the very beginning, as soon as she starts one, there's a nurse in there and she injects the isotope to get one while she's seizing so that they can see where the blood flow goes to that. The isotope will go to that seizure start. And then they have to get one that's interictal, which is between seizures. So they were able to get those two spec scans. They also did a MEG scan in October of 2018. And a MEG scan is a really fancy EEG. She is put in what looks like a bank vault, really thick cement walls. They glue the EEG leads to her scalp. The MEG scan uses a magnet to detect like the small magnetic fields in the brain. So it's a lot more accurate than a regular EEG because with the regular scalp EEG, you've got all of your scalp and tissue and skull and all that material that you're going through. So the MEG scan, that bypasses all that. Right. It's like that doesn't affect it near as much. So she had that MEG scan. October of 18, what they figured out at this point is they knew that her seizures were coming from a deeper structure than what they were able to pick up on the scalp EEGs. In May of 19, she went back for a week in the hospital at the epilepsy monitoring unit and had a stereo EEG. So the stereo EEG, they went in and drilled nine holes and inserted nine electrodes. They're kind of comparable to like a little coffee stirrer, you know, a little mm-hmm. small tube. And each one of those has anywhere from eight to 16 points of contact. So they can pinpoint those tiny little spots in the brain. They did that for a week, and they found two small seizure onsets that were near her occipital lobe. It's in her parietal lobe, but right up up against the occipital lobe. So they were kind of worried about visual field deficit in the beginning. But because they were so small, they went in in September of 2019, and they did a laser ablation, which is where those two small areas, they drilled back in and took a laser and ablated or cauterized that area. With that area being dead, it would keep that area from misfiring so that it wouldn't have caused seizures anymore. At that point, we had hoped that we had seen her last seizure. But on November the 21st of 2019, which ironically was exactly three years to the day after her first seizure, she had another one. Um, They had hoped that 
maybe her brain was still settling from the surgery in late September. Over Thanksgiving week, that's what we were kind of hoping as well. She went from Thanksgiving to April without one. Then in April, within a couple of weeks, she had three. So she started back having them again. And they scheduled her for another week-long video EEG in July of this year. That helped them to determine that there were was more seizure activity than what they originally thought. So at the end of September this year, she went in for another week-long stereo EEG. This time, they implanted 13 electrodes, and each one has 8 to 16 points of contact. I think she had somewhere between 150, 160 different points in her left hemisphere that they were able to specifically look at. Having that better coverage, along with her epileptologist doing some really intense brain mapping that would cause her to have seizures, they discovered that she was having seizures coming from an area that was too large to ablate. So they said we could go in and do an ablation, but we'd be back here again next year because the laser is so tiny, the area is too large. So the point we're at now is in the next few weeks, she is scheduled for a craniotomy, and they'll go in. Instead of drilling small holes, they'll actually go in and cut a portion of her skull and go in and resect or cut out most of the medial cortex of her parietal lobe up near the midline where your left and right hemisphere connect, right up next to that. I don't even know what to say. This is an incredibly hard journey. Someone wrote on your Facebook page about Bricklin. This young lady has the most positive attitude that you can imagine. It is so infectious that it may not be possible to be sad around her. That is so true of her. That's also true of you. How do you do it? Where does that come from? That's really kind of difficult to answer because I don't, I don't know that I would say that about myself necessarily, but I would have to say from the standpoint of me being around her, I certainly think that saying her positive attitude is infectious is a great way to word it because her positive vibes, they will infect you. There's something about her. At the same time, I think it could be more of a reflection than an infection, if that makes any sense. And what makes me think of it is if when you go to the beach and you are under an umbrella, you still get sunburned or you may not, but as a redhead, I can assure you that, that you can still get sunburned even though you're under an umbrella from where the sun will reflect off of the sand. In kind of a sense like that, Bricklin just does a really good job of reflecting the light of Christ onto others. She does, and you do as well. What have you learned about your family members through this ordeal? Um, a lot. <laughs> I've always heard the saying that blood is thicker than water. My mom used to, she used to have lots of expressions. That was one of the ones she would say, blood's thicker than water. When I've heard this, it was always referring to the fact that you have a stronger bond with your family than you would with friends. And I would have to say that while blood may be thicker than water, I would add that you still need water to survive. And I say this because family is not always going to be blood relative. And I'll give you a few examples. The first Saturday in November is the Walk to End Epilepsy. And our team called Bricklands Buddies, we help raise funds for epilepsy awareness. My brother-in-law's in-laws are always the very first to make a donation in Bricklin's honor. Without fail every year, they are right on top of it. And I have no doubt in my mind that 
I could pick up the phone at any hour, day or night, and if I needed them, the Fesslers, Bill and, and Teresa, they would be on their way from Texas to Alabama before I even had a chance to hang up the phone. We love them. They love us. They're like our extended family. Um, another example, my stepmom. She doesn't step in and play the part of my mom when my mom's not available, like you would expect a substitute to step in when a teacher's not around, and she's not a blood relative. She, in fact, she is, she is my second mom, and one of my best friends, really. Another example, when Blaze was in the ninth grade, he moved up to varsity football. There was a senior who was the starter in the position that Blaze played, and for the most part, a lot of seniors don't care a whole lot about the ninth graders. Those are underclassmen. But this senior, his name's Cortland, he took Blaze under his wing, and he was a mentor to him, and he encouraged him. Now, seven or eight years later, my kids refer to him as their brother, and in all honesty, he has actually introduced me to people as his white mama. He has his own son now, and he's soon going to be 25 years old. If I could, I would go tomorrow and adopt that child as my own. He is, he's our family now. We have a faith family at church. We've got work families. And we have some really, really good friends that are more like brothers and sisters than some type of acquaintance. So I guess what I've learned is that family can come in different shapes, sizes, colors, personalities, blood types. I honestly think that it has been the support and the prayers of all of our families mm -hmm. that has kept us upright during this storm. What have you learned about yourself? That's the tough part. And that's, that's what's hard. It's hard sometimes to learn about yourself. But I've learned that as much as I would like to, I cannot control her seizures. In the beginning, they would occur on the, like the third week of each month, usually the 21st to the 24th, usually on Monday or Tuesday, and sometime around 4.30 or 5 p.m. I could sort of prepare for those, so I felt like I had some kind of control because on those days during that week, I would leave work a little early so that I could be home, you know, in time to be there in case she had a seizure. Then she had that six months where we thought the medicine was controlling them, but when they started back, they were nowhere nearly as predictable as what they, in my mind, were supposed to be. They might be the first week of the month, Friday or Saturday, 10 or 11 a.m. during P.E. at her sister's volleyball game, at the, standing at the top of the stairs in our house, at church, in the car, in the shower. I mean, it was, it, they were so random and so far outside of my control. And as much as I thought that I was accepting epilepsy, apparently I wasn't doing a good job because for the next six months to a year, I really kind of wrestled over it with God. He knew that I needed some kind of sense of control, but I was so upset with him because he was allowing most of her seizures to happen when I wasn't with her. Um, I mean, I fought. He won, of course, but when I lost, it was almost a sense of relief, not so much because of what I had to admit or accept, but mostly, I think, relieved that the fight was over. And in the process, I've learned that although I can't control her seizures, she has not had one single seizure 
that he wasn't prepared for or that caught him off guard because he has protected her every time from any injuries when she might have fallen down, from falling down the stairs when she was standing at the top of the stairs, from any severe burns when she was in the shower. And he's protected her from from aspirating on her own vomit when she was in her bedroom alone. I had to, I'm sorry, I had to let go of things that I thought I had a grip on. I couldn't just give it to God when he had had it to begin with. And I couldn't put her in his hands like I wanted to, you know, here, God, I'm going to put her in your hands. I couldn't put her in his hands because she had been in his righteous right hand from the very start. I could really only do the best that I can to raise her and just trust that he'll pick up the rest and do what I can't. I call her my daughter, but truthfully, she's actually a daughter to the King of Kings, which is much more prestigious anyway. She's been his the whole time. He just happened to bless me with the opportunity to love her and care for her while we're here on earth. Well, those of us that are watching your family go through this, we just want you to know that we love you and that we're praying for you. Of course, we want Bricklin's health restored, and that's what we're praying for. What else do you hope comes out of this situation? I'm hoping and praying that God will use Bricklin's story to tell his story. Epilepsy did not happen to Bricklin without God's permission. And as much as I don't like epilepsy, if I had to rate it, I would rate it a 1 out of 10, and that's only if God used it for his glory somehow. So I don't like epilepsy at all. And even after 50-some-odd-plus seizures, they, they're not any easier to watch now than they were three or four years ago. I just trust that for reasons that I may never know, God has a purpose for allowing epilepsy to happen to our family. And because I believe that with every fiber in my body, I will continue. It's okay. I will continue to thank Him for these circumstances. Not that I like them, but if He uses our circumstances to one day help or encourage someone else and ultimately advance the kingdom, then I would consider it an honor to have been a small part of that. And I've said before, I'll continue to say it, if there is even one person that sees Bricklin's sweet spirit and comes to Christ as a result, it will have been worth every medical bill and every seizure. Your story is going to touch lives. It touches those of us that get to see you every day. It's going to touch the lives of those who listen to this podcast. Kelly, I'm incredibly proud of the way you surrender wholeheartedly to the Father's will each and every day. And I wish there was a way to bottle up the courage of you in Brooklyn and take as needed. Please know that you'll be in our thoughts and prayers. And to those listening to today's podcast, I hope that you will be encouraged. Whatever you're facing today, don't lose heart. Thank you for listening to this episode of On the Journey Conversations.